Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. How many more innocent American lives must be taken before we say enough Enough. What the president's really trying to do is create momentum. Now we know he is getting very much involved. Seems more like political theater. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. NATO also has a responsibility to prevent this war from escalating. It is in our vital national interest to ensure peaceful and stable Europe and make clear that might does not make right. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden again urges Congress to act on guns. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. A day after the rare evening address from the White House, we'll talk about the president's ideas and those from the other side of the aisle. In a special conversation ahead with Frank DeAngelis, the former principal of Columbine High School, now with the group Safe and Sound Schools. The war in Ukraine reaches its 100th day and the U.S. reopens its embassy with a new ambassador installed in Kyiv. We'll talk about that with former ambassador to Poland, Daniel Fried. An analysis from our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us. It's not often we get an evening address from the president of the United States, but that was the venue for Joe Biden's latest attempt to get gun legislation moving in Congress. Here he is. We need to ban assault weapons in high-capacity magazines. And if we can't ban assault weapons, then we should raise the age to purchase them from 18 to 21. We're joined not by a lawmaker to talk about the president's speech, but a former school principal. Frank DeAngelis was principal at Columbine High School for almost 20 years, including, yes, the day the shootings happened. Now with the group Safe and Sound Schools. Frank, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thank you for having me. How'd the president do last night? Is he hitting the right notes for you these past days? Well, we need to make changes. And, you know, I think back to where we were, um, right after Parkland, we were having these discussions, and we're right back, you know, and the kids were back then saying enough's enough. You adults have let us down, and unfortunately, I hope I've seen this happen time and time again after these school shootings occur, and everybody is passionate, and then it kind of goes yeah. away, and I just hope it continues. This, what is happening now, we need to come together and say it's about our kids and what can we do to say Well, there have been five presidents, as uh, I'm sure you know, during and since Columbine, all of whom Democrats and Republicans spoke to the nation about addressing the issue of gun violence following a terrible event like, like you're describing. What, what could make this time different? Well, hopefully both sides will come together and at least have discussions. And that's what worries me. You know, I grew up during the 60s and you know it's right towards the end of vietnam war and our country was divided but nothing in my recollection is like it is right now and people yeah. are disagreeing take time to listen to each other so hopefully both sides of the aisle can get together and come up with the solution because uh our kids are paying for it you know and, and some of the things that we address 
I think in addition to gun control and things of that nature, that that's one piece. And then we also have to make sure that we're providing support and help for our kids in these schools. Um, well, I, I want to get specific with you because we're actually hearing about policy proposals now. And, I, and, and with your experience, I want to know what your thoughts are uh, on some of them. It does seem like a lot of the ideas being considered would not have prevented some or any of these recent shootings that, that have started the conversation or restarted this conversation. So starting with what seems to be the most realistic right now, uh, based on the talks that are happening in the Senate, would be a red flag uh, law, we understand, or a bill to, I guess the bare minimum would be a bill to incentivize states to pass their own red flags. And I know a lot of them have already. Would that make a difference? Well, in Colorado, we have the law, a red state, you know, red flag law. And I guess the question, I'm not avoiding it. You know, I think everybody's looking, I think it's a combination of all these things that I just, I guess where I struggle is, with an 18-year-old being able to walk in and buy, an, you know, an automatic AR weapon and that type of thing. But I think yeah. you have to look at the states. Is it has it worked in Colorado? And I think it has. School safety protocols, uh, another a part of this possibly, including adding, we're hearing, adding armed guards and also uh, having only a single door of entry. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You know more about school facilities than most people. Uh, having spent over a quarter century working in them. Is it smart to have a single door? It is, but one of the issues that we confronted is we had two entrances in uh, for the students, you know, one down towards where they parked, another one where parents would let their kids off. And, yeah. and we did. We had school resource officers who I'm a strong proponent of, you know, having school resource officers, uh, police officers in the building, not as referred to as cops, but people there to support our kids. But one of the issues, I think, where you've got to really look at things is at Columbine, we probably, in addition to having those two main entrances, we also had 25 doors in a large high school such as mm -hmm. Columbine. And so it's important that if you do have those doors, that I constantly talk to our staff members and students about keeping those doors shut, things of that nature, you know, to check if someone did go out the door, unless if you do have someone, uh, you have alarms on every door, but if you do have alarms and a kid goes out and then that becomes disruptive. But I think, you know, single entrances are important. But unfortunately, what happens is if these kids are building, someone's going to open a door for them. I'll give you a prime example. I was at a school within the past couple of weeks here in Colorado, and all of a sudden I'm walking by, I'm going to go to the main entrance. Some kid comes, hey, you want to come in this door? And it says on there, do not let anyone in. You know, and I had a discussion saying, you know, I used to be a principal. You want to make sure you just don't let anyone in here. And so I think in addition to having cameras, in addition to having, you know, some of these other things that they're looking for, you also yeah. need to train your students and your staff on some of these daily okay. things that are not going to cost anything. It's but the general premise of hardening staff. schools is something that you support. Well, I am. And, but... With that being said, and I'll share something that affected me directly, after Columbine, I think parents were concerned, is the school safe? Because I'm sure many people now in Uvalde, Texas, are wondering if schools are safe. Yes. And we were, I told our parents that we were probably the safest school in the world. We had people at every door. We had armed guards. Mm -hmm. We had security cameras in. And it was about two weeks, three weeks into the school year, 
kids came to me and they said, Mr. D, we know you care about us. We know you love us. We know you want to keep us safe. But you're making us more anxious by all of this stuff that's in this building right now. It doesn't feel like a school. And so when I do have these conversations with school, you want to make them safe, but you also want to make sure that you're not creating an atmosphere of anxiety. Yep. I think that's that fine line that we have to find. That's a tough balance to find, I'm sure. Uh, I want to ask you about what's also uh, in the House right now. It's a very different set of proposals. Uh, we saw the Judiciary Committee yesterday move this package, uh, including a number of different ideas from uh, banning some semi-automatic rifles, banning some high-capacity magazines. Uh, Congressman Ken Buck, the Republican from your state in Colorado, testified before that committee about sort of the gun culture uh, in Colorado. And and I guess what a false effort this would be. Listen to what he said. In rural Colorado, uh, an AR-15 is a gun of choice for killing raccoons before they get to our chickens. Uh, it is a, a, a gun of choice for killing a, a fox. It is a it is a gun that you control predators on your ranch, on your farm, on your property. Uh, the idea that, that somehow we're going to deny access to, uh, I think there are 20 million AR-15s in circulation in this country. Um, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense. If there are that many of these guns around, is it possible to, to put the, the toothpaste back in the tube? Is this a waste of time to try to prohibit some semi-automatic rifles? Well, I think you got to look at it. How are they purchasing? And I guess the question, if I, if I, you know, and I know the senator or I know the representative, but the question I would have is: there other ways to control these animals that you don't need an AR-15, things of that nature? You know, and one of the things does seem like pretty heavy firepower for a raccoon or whatever, isn't that that kind of overdoing it? Yes, and that's I would agree. You know, and I know a (laughs) lot of times. the argument will be, well, we need an AR-15 or automatic weapon or a 100-round magazine for self-defense. Well, I think there's other ways that you can protect yourself with self-defense than, you know, these automatic weapons. So, yeah. you know, I, I do struggle with that comment. Frank, I'm hitting you with all this uh, policy stuff as I sit here in Washington. Uh, you have pulled us back to the human side of this a couple of times while this is being debated right now, it's very difficult to tell if anything is going to come from it. And people's skepticism, uh, you know, is is warranted, it seems to me, after after so many turns. What's your message to fellow educators, people who are actually in the middle of this right now in rooms with children who are in many cases uh, concerned about their own safety? Well, I think one of the things uh, that I share is we do continue to hear about these events that happened just like at Ryan Elementary mm-hmm. and other places, Oxford, this past year. But what we do not hear about, what is not publicized in the media, is how many have been stopped by things we have in place now mm-hmm. that we didn't have in place at Columbine uh, with the police response. Now it was secure the perimeter, wait for SWAT to arrive. Well, now hopefully single officers are going into the buildings. We have um, threat assessment programs we did not have in place prior to Columbine. We have, you know, unfortunately after Sandy Hook, you know, one of the lessons is lock all doors. What they didn't anticipate was a gunman to shoot through glass. Well, now many of our schools are equipped with uh, bulletproof or shield glass. It's going to be more difficult for the bullet to penetrate. So I think there have been many things in place that are saving lives. But unfortunately, one more life lost is one too many. 
and we do need to come together. And if I could talk to the legislators, is let's put aside, you know, Republican, Democrat, they're all of our kids. And what are we going to do to keep them safe? Boy, Frank, I I never thought we would end this conversation uh, on a high note, but I appreciate that. To to think that we are safer now than we were in 1999 is a place to begin. And Frank DeAngelis, I thank you for being with us, sharing your thoughts today on Bloomberg. Thank you. Have a good weekend. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, I guess I'll never know if you actually need an AR-15 to keep the squirrels away, like Congressman Buck said, but it's unlikely an assault weapons ban of any sort will be passing the Senate anytime soon. It's just the reality of the votes right now. Let's assemble the panel on a Friday and hear from Rick and Jeannie, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. Rick, I was struck by an important story from Bloomberg Businessweek. NRA lobbying curbs research that can prevent violent deaths. Madison Muller did a great job uh, reporting the story, uh, suggesting that this has been decades in the making. Uh, Going back to a 1993 study supported by a grant from the CDC that was called Gun Ownership as a Risk Factor for Homicide in the Home. And the whole idea here is actually treating gun violence like a public health problem, as it's one of the leading killers, as the president said last night, of kids. Uh, Madison writes, the study did not sit well with the NRA, which introduced a now 30-year-long campaign against the agency. Would we be in a different place right now, maybe having a different conversation with more creative solutions if that did not happen? Sure. I I think that the fact that we're not looking inside the home uh, as a way to prevent violence is uh, a big mistake. Uh, We've talked about it on the the, the show before, I mean, you know, one of the things that, that the NRA used to make a regular thing of is talking about securing your weapons at home, getting safes. Uh, uh, there was a whole movement in the 1980s and 90s around gun locks. 
uh, to try and improve safety. The president uh, mentioned safe storage last night. Is that exactly. something that could come out of the Senate? Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, there's there, the, a lot of the, the senators who are opining on this right now and trying to figure out what to do. Remember the NRA at a time when it was all about gun safety. You know, it was never a lobbying organization in the first 30 years of its existence. It was all about training and making sure that people took care of their weapons, knew how to operate them, you know, and understood about safety. And that was really the, non, the number one thing. Then they migrated into this lobbying organization, much like the tobacco companies did, to protect the franchise. And all these rules, things like opposing the CDC uh, bill or getting, uh, and the president brought this up the other night, getting um, uh, immunity for gun manufacturers, all of a sudden that became the function of the NRA. Mm-hmm. So That's right. Uh, it's it's been a long time in coming, but I think revisiting these issues uh, is probably what's happening right now in the House and the Senate. The president reached for a statistic uh, last night that helped to generate this story from Bloomberg Businessweek. Listen. According to new data just released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. The number one killer. More than car accidents. More than cancer. More than drug overdoses. Yet, as Madison writes, public health funding to prevent child gun deaths is minuscule compared with other far less lethal threats to children. Jeannie, look at this. Leukemia, for example, the most common form of childhood cancer, causes fewer deaths than gun violence, but receives almost 10 times more funding from the government. Where would we be uh, if there was parity here? Well, you know, it was stunning, and I thought the president did a very good job last night of laying that out and and making that reality clear to all Americans who were listening. But we also need to underscore that as much attention as the NRA gets, they are not the number one lobbying group on behalf of gun rights. It's, it's, you know, you've got the National National Shooting Sports Foundation spent $5 million in 2021. The gun owners of America make the NRA look like they're liberal. So, you know, you've got... (laughs) a lot of lobbying going on a lot of money going there and you know i thought um what the president said last night was after saying all of that he said something that is out the fact the the fact is majority of senate republicans don't want the proposals debated they don't want them to come up for a vote and that's the reality of the situation we find ourselves in and the president having spent so many years in the senate Mm -hmm. knows that intuitively you know if you don't get passage of these bills after Sandy Hook with 54 Democrats and 26 deaths of kids, or I guess it was 20 kids at that point. What What is the likelihood today? So President Biden knows that. And then, of course, he followed that up today by saying he's not directly involved in the negotiations. I'm not saying he should be, yeah. but it's hard to imagine this getting moved forward in any capacity that deals with weapons, maybe doing school safety, maybe mm-hmm. doing health issues, mental health, but weapons, hard to imagine because gun restrictions aren't really on the table at this point. Rick, I'd like your take on the speech last night, including the optics. The president came down the cross hall, what some people like to refer to as the bin Laden walk, remembering uh, Barack Obama that day, uh, lined with candles, lined with candles on the floor and reached the podium in the East Room from where he addressed the nation. How did he do? You know, look, I think that he was trying to galvanize public attention on this. Uh, these kinds of speeches do that. They'll, was they'll it be- well delivered? Echoed, well-delivered, and and I didn't think it was uh, uh, too much in the sense that a lot of people try to demagogue this issue, use these moments to try and split it up. Uh, mm-hmm. Even did a shout-out to responsible gun owners in the speech, which I thought was very smart on his behalf because he's got to have a message uh, 
that brings everybody to the table. It's not good enough just to have his party ginned up on this and wanting to make reforms. He's got to bring in Republicans, too. And I thought that was the nature of the speech. So he's created some pressure but left the opening. And I think, you know, now the will of Congress has to work and pox on their house if they're not able to get it done. I mean, Republicans and Democrats alike are going to be seen as ineffective. It's not just one party is going to not have the ability to walk away from this. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens this next week is going to be an important week for that when they all return from from break. Uh, we're out of time, of course, Jeannie, but do you expect a news conference with an announcement of some sort of compromise next week? I hope for it. The president did not go to filibuster reform. Um, and also we heard Representative Chris Jacobs, first term from New York, a GOP from Buffalo. He hmm. supports an assault weapons ban. He's out of the race right now. That's the reality of where we are. He has pulled himself out of the reelection because of his support and the pushback he got from Republicans on that. Rick and Jeannie with us for the hour on a Friday on Sound On, the fastest hour in politics coming up, the 100-day war in Ukraine. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. The war in Ukraine has now been underway for 100 days. And as the intelligence community warns of a Russian military gaining momentum in the east, the U.S. plants the flag once again in Kyiv, where the embassy reopens with a new ambassador, Bridget Brink, the first ambassador in three years appointed to Ukraine. We're going to talk with a former colleague of hers next, Ambassador Daniel Fried. The new U.S. ambassador has arrived in Kyiv, as I mentioned, after our diplomatic corps left the capital when it became a war zone 100 days ago. We've, we've hit the 100-day mark. Bridget Brink is the first ambassador the U.S. has appointed to Ukraine in three years. She spoke from Kyiv. It is in our vital national interest to ensure peaceful and stable Europe and make clear that might does not make right. A Michigan native, former ambassador to Slovakia, an expert on the region and Eastern Europe as a whole. We're joined now by a former colleague of Ambassador Brink, and that's Daniel Fried, former ambassador to Poland, former assistant secretary of state for Europe, now Wiser Family Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ambassador, welcome back. It's great to have you. Uh, beyond the obvious just show of, 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 I won't say force, but presence for the United States to have a, a diplomatic presence in Kyiv and, and be there to show unity. What does this change in terms of our diplomatic relations with Kyiv and the future of the war? Bridget Brink is an inspired choice for U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And what it means is the U.S. will have basically a 24-7 connectivity with the Ukrainian government during a time of war. It means that when Washington's asleep, uh, Bridget Brink in Kyiv will be active. It means whatever happens, whenever the Ukrainian government needs to contact the U.S. government, Mm-hmm. He will be on hand as a trusted interlocutor. It, and this is before we get to Bridget Brink herself. I think she is a fabulous choice for ambassador to Ukraine. Yeah. But does it hasten the end of the war? Does this somehow create a, a new off-ramp uh, diplomatically? Or am I 
Am I, is this wishful thinking? I don't think just having a U.S. embassy presence back in Kiev or a U.S. ambassador in Kiev is going to end the war. The war will end either with a Ukrainian success on the battlefield or the Russians being fatigued and wanting to get out, which is possible, or it will end if the Russians succeed in seizing and holding enough territory uh, that they can simply stand their ground. We're not at that point yet. Much depends on the battlefield. Much depends on U.S. support militarily for Ukraine and the support of other European countries, particularly Poland. And this is something no one can predict right now. It's a war, and the fortunes of war will decide a lot. Does having a diplomatic presence in Kiev protect that city or make it more of a target? Neither. The Russians are going to go after Kiev if they can. They stop their offensive in Kiev because they had lost. The Ukrainians beat them. They retreated. Now the Russians are trying to take ground in the east. Having a U.S. embassy in Kiev doesn't make it a target any more than it was. It doesn't provide it protection. What it does is give the U.S. eyes and ears on the ground working with President Zelensky of Ukraine and his team. That's awfully important to have. We could be going into a difficult weekend here. Uh, We've said that a lot of times, Ambassador Freed, but word from uh, British intelligence is that the, the Luhansk region could fall in the next two days. If if Russia starts to rope up territory like that in the Donbass, uh, does that make this war a much longer one? I don't know how uh, it, difficult it would be for Russia to hold those towns, but this was already, of course, a very dangerous region before the war began. The Russians have been advancing very slowly in Luhansk and Donetsk, particularly the Luhansk region. They've been advancing at great cost to themselves. It's not clear whether they can hold the ground they've taken. Ukrainians have launched locally successful counterattacks. So the battle is still being fought. The Russians, if they succeed in capturing all of Luhansk, could always proclaim a ceasefire and claim victory on the basis of what they've already managed to conquer from from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But it's not clear that they can hold that territory. They don't have a lot of troops. They're facing a hostile and united population. So this is not this is not a done deal for the Russians. The Ukrainians still have certain battlefield advantages because they have an army that knows what it's fighting for. They're getting more weapons from the U.S. and other countries. And their population is is engaged. They're fighting for their lives. The Russians are fighting for Vladimir Putin's cause, and Russian morale doesn't seem to be high. So the battle is still it hangs in the balance. Vladimir Putin says Russia will allow grain exports uh, by sea. Uh, coming out of Ukraine, which has been uh, a real sticking point over the last couple of weeks, Ambassador, is that the type of sign? Is that maybe a glimmer of hope where you say, okay, that 
we could add to that conversation and maybe progress at the negotiating table? It would be good if President Putin allowed Ukraine's grain to go to the world markets in Africa and the Middle East that need it. The Russians have been blocking this grain. They've been stealing some of this grain and selling it as their own, which is theft. It's not clear that the Russians are going to allow the Ukrainians to export grain. The Russians have sometimes said they'll allow it to be exported only in return for lifting of sanctions. Mm -hmm. That's no deal. That's no deal. Right now, one of the chief, one of the priorities for the U.S., for Ukraine and Europe in general, is to unlock Ukraine's grain exports so Putin can't use the weapon of starvation as additional leverage. And there are a lot of ideas about how to do this. Escorts, you know, yeah. military involvement. Under a UN not- flag, possibly. Well, this this yeah. hopefully is work? is one that, that, that is a, a positive development here as we report on the terminal that Russia will allow grain exports by sea. We'll see if it actually happens. Many thanks to the Honorable Daniel Freed, ambassador with us again on Bloomberg Sound On. And we'll reassemble the panel next. Rick and Jeannie on the fastest hour in politics. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Starting to think that maybe Joe Biden and Elon Musk are not big fans of one another. Of course, they don't seem to like each other at all. Elon's not invited to the electric car events at the White House. He's using non-union labor. Now he says he's going to vote Republican all the time. It goes on. Uh, And it did not get better today. After Musk wrote in a letter to Tesla executives that actually moved the stock that he has a, quote, super bad feeling unquote, about the U.S. economy, and he wants to cut jobs. We're talking about a 10% cut to the workforce here, according to Reuters. Super bad, of course, being shades worse than just plain old bad. President Biden was asked about it today at the podium. Here's what he said. Elon Musk has, asked, has said that he has a super bad feeling about the U.S. economy. He's laying off 
10% of his workforce. What do you say to Elon Musk about his feeling about the economy? Jamie Dimon has said similar things. Well, let me tell you, while Elon Musk is talking about that, Ford is increasing their investment overwhelmingly. I think Ford is increasing the investment in building new electric vehicles, 6,000 new employees, union employees, I might add, in the Midwest. Um, the former Chrysler Corporation, Stellantis, they are also making similar investments in electric vehicles. Intel is adding 20,000 new jobs for making computer chips. Um, so, uh, you know, lots of luck on his trip to the moon. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you know. So that's the line. <laughs> Good luck on your trip to the moon, Biden tells Musk after economy warning. That's the Bloomberg story. By the way, this this got going on Twitter as well. The Elon Musk tweets, thanks, Mr. President, uh, with a news release from NASA that actually is all about SpaceX, his company, to land next Americans on the moon. It's really something. Biden versus Musk. They're, they're like a, a microcosm of American politics, these two. And on that note, our panel reassembled with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg politics contributors. Was that a satisfactory answer for starters, Jeannie? You know, he took a card out of his pocket, I will note, to run through those stats that he had on the Ford and the Intel investments and so forth. They knew that this was going to come up today. Yeah, I think given the tension between these two for several months now, I mean, Elon Musk was like fact checking the, the State of the Union in real time at one point. So it, it's been pretty touch and go. I think the president handled this pretty well. He could have, you know, criticized him. He didn't. He pivoted right to Ford and Intel. And then, of course, you know, Elon Musk, look, he wins out. He's got the president talking about him as if he needs anybody else talking about him. He's able to go on and trumpet, you know, the work that he's doing. So, you know, I, I thought it was all in all pretty good for both of them and you know the president and the wealthiest man in the world he's also uh, an innovator uh, rick and my god he's he's literally giving us uh our own venue to get back to the space station and the moon after we've been paying russia to do this for years and years lots of luck on his trip to the moon what if something bad happened on that trip is that appropriate for a president to say no, he totally sucked into the whole thing. I mean, I'm and I'm shocked that, that this actually went through some vetting inside the White House staff, and someone thought it was a good idea to get in a fight with Elon Musk. I mean, like, what I don't in know the if world? that was on the card, but at who's least got he their had hand on the button in there? I mean, like, that's I'm I'm starting to get worried about these guys. Uh, no, it's 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 ridiculous. Why pick a fight with a guy who? I mean, like, I understand they don't like each other. Elon Musk doesn't have unions, and Joe Biden is the biggest union promoting president in our time. I get it, but like, if you're the president of the United States, you you, you don't give a guy who's actually going to own Twitter a chance to <laughs> come after you. I mean, like, that's like that's like incredibly bad idea. And so I I think it's all crazy. Uh, and I agree with with what you're saying, Joe. I mean, like Elon Musk doing a lot of really good things for our country right now. And without his SpaceX, a lot of our satellites wouldn't be going up in orbit because they would have otherwise been shot on Russian rockets that we're not using now, thank goodness. So, yeah. um, you know, I think both of them need to go back to their neutral corner and, you know, pay less attention to each other. Russia's bailing on the, the, the ISS project at some point here, apparently, Jeannie. They have no money, really, for a space program, and we're going to see to that. Would it be uh, maybe uh, not a bad idea, a little beer summit here or something? 
You know, I, I have to disagree with you guys. I think the president handled it fine. Listen, I don't think they wrote on the card the thing about, you know. Right, no, <laughs> I don't either. I but, don't either. But, you know, listen, you know, the president, he he is known to say things off the cuff. He said it today, but he didn't go after him in the way he could have. I mean, let's not forget, Elon Musk has been going after the president for a while now. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the president, I think, pivoted and talked about some good things, got his message out there. I don't think it was so bad. And, hey, if they want to have a beer summit, that's fine with me. Let them go have it. That'll be good. <laughs> I guess Joe Biden's a teetotaler, Rick, right? That's not going to happen. Uh, I, I don't think it should happen. No, okay, <laughs> nothing good will come out of the first. Nothing good came out of the first beer summit. Why would fair this one work? Enough. Uh, I, and, you know, I don't mean to be too cute about that, but to Jeannie's point, one of the, you, you've got the richest man in the world here. To your point, Rick, um, he's he's in, impacting civilization as, as an innovator and an employer, uh, driving the EV movement and, of course, the space company, among other things. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe bring him to the White House for, for one of these events. I think just be kind to him when you're in public. I mean, like uh, and, and certainly include him when you're doing things related to EVs. I mean, he right. is wouldn't a, that he, diffuse the whole thing? Absolutely. And I, well, I don't know if it'll diffuse the whole what thing. What do you right? think? There Gene? may be other things. I, I thought that was a misstep from the start, but but let's be clear. This this White House communications team. I, I mean, just just look at what happened when they were talking yesterday. Uh, you know, th- this keeps going on and on. So I'm not surprised it was a misstep from the start. They could have gotten this under control. Yeah. I think the president probably making light of it today, as he was trying to do, is probably the best thing we're going to get out of this team. So what's more enjoyable than a Friday afternoon? Checking out of work, little time with Rick and Jeannie, our panel here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Glad you came along. If you're just uh, joining us, you showed up late, I will remind you to subscribe to the Sound On podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And so I finally saw Top Gun. Did, did you? You saw it, right? Everyone's seen it from what I'm reading here. This thing crossed the $200 million mark yesterday. Top Gun Maverick. Of course, I had to go. Any American male around my age has to go. But I didn't really fully understand that until I found myself in a dark room with a whole bunch of other middle-aged dudes and none of them with dates. Or friends, for that matter. Everyone was there alone. I thought, you know, I'd be cute and go to a matinee, save a little money, sneak into this thing. And I'm sitting here thinking, what am I doing? But I was sucked in, as I'm sure you were if you saw it, within seconds of the open, the music rolls. And as somebody who has actually done a catapult shot and and a tail hook landing on an aircraft carrier and survived, and once pulled nine Gs in an F-16, I am here to tell you that what you saw in this movie was the real thing. This is what these guys go through. Add the patriotic overtones, complete, by the way, with showing the Taiwan flag. Did you see that on Maverick's flight jacket? Made a very bold statement. And so is that why it's doing so well? I mentioned it crossed the $200 million mark yesterday, and it's now on track to become Tom Cruise's biggest domestic grossing film ever. All right, I can't talk over the music any longer, as cool as that is. But uh, the panel, at least half the panel saw it, Rick Davis. There is 
almost in need right now. I think, remember when the first Star Wars movie came out and people were stuck in this malaise and it gave them a great escape and something to feel good about. Here's a more patriotic version of that. At a very difficult time in our politics, it's the biggest movie to ever hit the theaters, apparently. Yeah, I, I've been waiting for this for two years. Uh, I went and saw it last <laughs> Saturday, and I could not have been more thrilled. I, I, I was actually happy that it didn't come out during COVID because I wouldn't have gone to a theater to see it. Yeah, right. Watch it on, you know, a streaming service, and I would have been, I would have been still impressed, but not not overwhelmed. It, it when you see it on the big screen, it's just a different thing. And when you're in a big room with people, you know, who are cheering when the good guys win for a change, <laughs> uh, you know. I, I couldn't imagine a better. You feeling. wouldn't have used the name uh, Maverick uh, for John McCain without the first movie, right? Uh, no, uh, he was a Maverick before. Uh, I mean, Pete he was, Mitchell of course, was but that brought it into the lexicon. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it was it was used as a derisive phase within the GOP referring to John McCain. I mean, it yeah. wasn't wasn't the same thing, but but yeah, it was it was it was all the same kind of uh, emotion that mm-hmm. that tugged at your heartstrings and your mind when you you thought of someone as a maverick and i just thought uh the first movie was great and i think this one has surpassed it uh and and will will live on forever as yeah. you know probably as you said tom cruise's best film genie i know uh you didn't see the movie but what do you make of this sort of feeling right now that there, there's kind of a hunger for something to feel good about the country that you live in and to rick's point see the good guys win i know that's simple but it's apparently worth a lot of money Joe Matthew, I could not see the movie because I'm not a middle-aged man who could get into the theater to to get a seat. So look, a girl came in. Yeah, we're not allowed. And <laughs> and and I told you before, I'm sacrificing my seat until they book Tom Cruise on the show, and then I'm going to see it. And don't fool me with any old Tom Cruise; it's got to be the real one. But all right, um, it's a deal. Yeah, thank you. But you know, I, I I do think there's a hunger. And look, it's a good sign. The box office is up tremendously yeah, as a result. Somebody's of this. going back to the so, movies, Rick. And Jeannie, meet us back here on Monday. This is Bloomberg. (laughs) What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.